Property investment done well can really set you up for life. But there's a lot of conflicting opinion on what done well looks like. And none of the experts get to be proven right or wrong until at least five years have passed or even better, 10 years, which is a problem for investors who want to follow the tried and true methodology. There's always somebody willing to help you part with your money by selling you exclusive access to their secret source recipe and the lack of evidence of the success or otherwise of many investment strategies seems to be no impediment to sub-advisors as they build their businesses. So in this episode, we're going to hunt for some evidence. Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. We've asked Stuart Weems to join us for this discussion. Stuart is a financial planner with a really good understanding of property and he has written numerous books about both finance and property as well as being a regular contributor to The Australian. Now, Stuart hosts a podcast called Investopoly. Uh, One of his books is the same name, and he has a particular gift for explaining financial concepts in a way that we can all understand. And one of the things that we really like about Stuart is that he values evidence. And he doesn't have a particular axe to grind when it comes to property, other than having a mortgage broking business. He doesn't sell any other property-related service. So the research that he does isn't designed to support a sales pitch. And this isn't the first time we've interviewed Stuart either. You can go back to episodes 39, 126, 162, and 225 if you want to hear more from him. But for today, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, Stuart. I'm looking forward to a meaty chat. Yeah, always fun to chat. Thanks for the invite. That's right. I just uh, had a thought as I heard that. Um, sounds like we get you back every year or so, right? Um, <laughs> we've been going five years. I think you've been on four times. It's usually every 50 episodes or so. Um, has your property philosophy, because you, you've seen five years more people, like, and it's five years of looking at property portfolios, other investment decisions, talking through when they bought it, what they're holding, should they hold? Like, I think there's, there's something you will learn over, you know, and you're constantly having to challenge yourself. Like you, whenever you're looking at a client situation, you have to have that mentality that is there something I don't know here? Why did that work? You know, why did that property? And you, you start to have to, you know, build evidence around that, why that works. Because if it, if you didn't have that evidence there, you'd be like, oh my God, that's something someone did. I didn't know about that. That goes against my property philosophy. Like, so it, just out of curiosity, over those five years, do you think that your philosophy has changed or is your fundamental beliefs the same? I think, uh, you know, I started my business in uh, 02, so it's uh, 21-ish years ago. So, Chris, you're right, over that time, I don't know how many property portfolios I've seen, and I guess you get to see the good, the bad, the ugly, and you get to um, you, you get the benefit of hindsight as well. Um, uh, I would say over that period of time, that 20 years, um, my – uh, conviction has just got stronger over time. So I don't think my, I don't think my belief changed, but my belief has just got stronger in, in terms of this is the right way to do it or, well, this is the highest probability 
uh, approach of achieving goals. Um, and then everything else is much lower probability in terms of achieving their goals. So I don't know if you could just sit there and go, well, there's only one way to make money out of property. You know, I think, I think lots of people do it different ways. My thought process is really how can I earn the highest return for lowest risk? And putting it differently, what is the highest probability? What does this client need to do over the next 10 years that gives us the highest probability of actually them achieving their retirement or income or financial goals. And I think uh, over that time, uh, you know, I might have been more open to different strategies maybe 20 years ago, you know, not having the benefit of that experience. Today, I'm more definitive, I think. Do you think that's your advisor? Because this is something like, I think the, the mortgage brokers uh, industry is, is going on a, on a journey. I do think it's heading in the right direction, but it is typically been a transactional industry that's been around uh, facilitating what a client wants and almost being a bit of a validator there because that would slow down a transaction. Um, but, you know, there's not many people that are coming from an advice background into, you know, broking. That that sort of mentality of getting the high probability because that's what an advisor does, right? Like if a great financial advisor isn't there saying, oh, let's try this and see if it works <laughs> and, and let's try this. Um, you you really got to be looking at the client situation and go, well, how am I, because I don't want to take a risk that isn't going to work because I could butcher them. You know, I could basically stuff up their future. Obviously, there's advisors out there that don't think like that and they're, you know, going for commission base and, and they're, they're just going where the money is. But the predominantly advisor, that's the thought process. Do you think that's where it is? That that thought process starts because you see yourself as someone who's trying to really give them trusted advice that's actually going to work rather than something that, you know, just hit and hope. Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I mean, is it altruistic or is it self-centred? In one way, it's self-centred, Chris. I think at least 20 years ago, my, my thinking was more self-centred because I was thinking, well, if my clients buy crap properties and they don't grow, you know, there's not much I can, I can do one transaction for them, but that's where it ends. Whereas back then I was thinking, well, hang on, if I help them buy really good quality properties, they will generate income and financial strength. And over the next 20 years, they'll become great clients. And so whilst that initial thought was, I would argue, selfish or self-centered, um, ultimately, the client wins because they're still buying great properties. And in fact, they're miles better off than I am <laughs> because, you know, they got all the equity and, and so forth. So the way that I looked at that's the way I looked at it initially is really what sort of client I can, because obviously, you know, uh, for to run a mortgage broking business, client acquisition typically for most brokers is the hardest part. You know, where do I find the client? So if you can have more repeat clients, then you build a stronger business. So that's that's my what I was initially thinking. The other thing too is I had a lot of Medico clients and they would ring me up in July and go, just bought this property off the plan because I saw my tax bill last last year and I paid too much tax. And I look at the property they bought and I just like bang my head against the wall saying, you idiot, what did you just buy that for? You just lost a couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, either on that actual asset or in opportunity cost. And so the other part was the frustration of clients doing stupid things uh, and trying to help them. And I, after a couple of years, I got to a point where, Chris, if I thought the client was going buying a crap property, I just wasn't interested in the transaction. And I just said no to the business. So let's let's get to what, what your belief is or was that, that has been cemented. Um, but also what you see as a crap property or a good property. So we talked about there's one example of a crap one. 
you know, and, and this is from the perspective of, of observing and looking at these performances, but also measuring them in a finan- in a numbers sense. Do you want to yep. hit us? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Look, so look, I think we can um, talk about um, attributes and percentage returns and those sorts, and, and those things are incredibly important, particularly when comparing investments and so forth. But at the end of the day, we're really interested in dollars, to my mind. At the end of the day, you've got to pay for retirement in dollars. So if I've got five million bucks in the bank, my retirement's going to be comfortable. If I've got five dollars in the bank, I'm in trouble, right? So then, th- then the thing is, the the question I would ask myself, then continually ask myself, is what have I seen? What what's the um, What's the constant theme or consistent theme that I see where clients have made a lot of money in dollar terms from property? And the answer is capital growth. Um, and it's, it's pretty basic maths. Like if you, all you need is a 7.2% return. And if you get that on average over long run, your property doubles in value. So let's just look at some basic numbers. I buy a million dollar property today. In 20 years time, that property's worth $4 million. So I've acquired $3 million of equity. Okay, I got some capital gains tax, about 700 grand. I borrowed a million dollars to buy the property. So I walk away with $2.2 million in the bank after tax, which isn't $2.2 million today. It's in 20 years' time. So it's about $1.4. $1.4 million, if you give someone, and all I've had to do is, is service the, the cost to hold that property over the time. That's my contribution to the investment. My return is $1.4 after tax. Now, if you, um, most people have a bit of super. But if you give them another 1.4 in their bank account, that that's typically going to be enough for everyone to retire or for most people to retire. So really, the question then is, um, how do I get um, 7.2% or let's call it 7% or 5% plus inflation in terms of capital growth? I don't need to go and buy five properties. Um, I don't need to go and pick the next growth suburb. You know, I don't need to be a lot right. I just don't need to be wrong. And so if I go and buy the highest quality asset I can possibly buy, it gives me the greatest probability of achieving 7.2%. Now, remember the average, the median over long term in most capital city markets done about 8% over a very long period of time. So 7.2% should be more than achievable, particularly if I select a really good quality asset from a fundamentals perspective. So the best way to make money out of property, to my mind, and based on the evidence and exactly what I've seen uh, over the last 20 years is to buy a, a property that has the highest probability of generating compounding capital growth over the long run. Do you, you mentioned a very good point before, um, you know, where there's an opportunity cost. And and I, I've seen this a few times as well where people have got a belief, I don't want an investment property because I've done that, right? Uh, and it didn't work. And so... And, and even with shares, like people I've, I've seen, they've, I've bought 50 grand of shares, they've gone down to 40 grand, they lost $10,000, but then that stops them for the rest of their life putting any more money into shares, right? So do you see that one of the issues with, with people when they're going with the property market, they almost try to treat it as a, let's, like, I'll, I'll spend less, and this definitely happens. Like I yes, Yesterday, I was trying to convince a client to spend more, and it, obviously that's in our interest from a financial point of view, but it was also because they're going for a studio versus a two-bed apartment. Um, and, you know, and so there's a huge resale uh, issue there. Um, do you think that's one of the issues with this property investment? When people go a little bit like around, try to pick a market and try to get it. And if it doesn't work, the opportunity cost of that stopping them buying another asset, stopping them, the opportunity cost of what if they did buy a better asset, 
Do you think that's something that people don't put enough thought into is what happens if you get it wrong? Yeah, I think property's all or nothing. You either do it right or you don't do it at all. And the problem is that if you go half in um, and, and go, well, I don't want to risk um, buying a million-dollar asset, so I'll buy half a million-dollar asset, you may as well just forget about it. Just go to find another asset class. Share market's perfect for, you know, incremental investing or smaller amounts, but not property is not. So if you're going to do property, um, if I was sitting in front of someone and, and they were contemplating, I'd say, if you're going to do it, do it well or just don't do it at all, which means sometimes you've got to swing for the fences a little bit and and push yourself borrowing capacity wise or cash flow wise and so forth. now you've got to consider whether that's right for you and whether that's safe to do and all those sorts of things. But the point is that if you don't do it, if you don't really push yourself to really trying to get a better quality asset, all you're actually doing is increasing your investment risk because your probability of getting seven percent capital growth over the long run is is lower compared to, you know, if you had to spend an extra two or three hundred thousand on an asset, might get you into a completely different sort of type of asset location, less impairment, all those sorts of things. And it's a fallacy, isn't it, that it's also applying that sort of um, I guess investment fundamentals that you might apply, say, to the share market where you've got to diversify. And that's fine when you can invest smaller amounts of money across different assets, and you and you can and you can buy a bit of an asset, you know, or shares are a bit of a bit of a bigger asset, bit of a business, right? Whereas with property, and it's the thing that I'm always on about is like you're making one gamble. You know, seventy one percent of Australian investors only own one property, one investment property. So the odds are you're going to get one, right? And even if the odds are even if you manage to get two or more, you're starting with one. And then so you've got a thesis then that whatever your thesis is, that that's going to be the property that gives you the opportunity to create the wealth that you want to create in over the long term, that's going to be the one. And yet there's so much risk that people take with that by tr- trying to chase the next best thing and, and, and get that short-term sugar hit without fun without realizing the fundamentals i mean you you've done quite a lot of um i guess research and case studies one of the things i thought was really interesting as well so aside from the asset quality and and really getting your head around what really is the risk is the risk in what i'm borrowing or is the risk in what i'm buying but but also you you did some really interesting research that i thought was great it was about what's the damage if you pay five percent um over for a good asset versus buy a cheaper asset you know, so people really worry about, they say, you make money when you buy and it's in property and it's true, but it's not true in the price you pay. It's actually true in what you buy. And that's where there's another fallacy. It's like people think it's the price you pay, but so you've, and I just thought this, this research that you did was fantastic. Uh, thank you. It's, um, you know, uh, property and shares are, com- are two, I mean, it's sort of saying the obvious, two very different asset classes, but your approach to the asset class and, and how you invest couldn't be more different. And the thing that I see, the mistake that I see, and as an accountant, you know, by trade, I'm obviously very analytical. Now, with property, that will hurt you more often than not because there's so much nuance in property and the data that you have with property is is largely unreliable. Like there's so many problems with it. It's either out of date or it's too macro or it doesn't really – 
get down to the nitty-gritty of, you know, that street is better than this street or that side of the street is better than this street and, and so forth. Whereas in the share market, you've got data till you go nuts and the data is is very reliable. It's very timely. And you can use data then to build a, a, a share portfolio or consider the best way to invest in emerging markets or whatever it might be. But if you take the same analytical approach to property, you'll you'll definitely make it. Or you, it's very risky. You'll make a mistake probably, because property is part art, part science. And so you want the science bit. You want a little bit of analytics. You know, you want to make sure has this area grown? Does this asset have the fundamentals? Has it proven its ability to generate capital growth over time? Those sorts of things. But that's only that's only going to get fifty percent or or less of the way there. It's really the, the local knowledge, the understanding of the market, the understanding of property attributes and how things behave and those sorts of things. And I think that's where people get tripped up. I think that's where people think, hey, I've got access to the internet now, which 20 years ago we still did, but there, was, there wasn't very much information on the internet. And people then were forced, I think, to go and seek advice. And I think that sort of served them quite well. Now there's a lot of information on the internet and to some degree, I think then people, it invites or, or suggests that people can kind of do that work themselves. And that's just risk. That's risky. Stuart, what's your sort of thoughts around the chasing of short term? It happens in any type of investing, even like crypto um, shares, right? We all want us to get that sugar hit, right? We want to be proven that what we did today was a great financial decision and what ends up happening i feel like with property is people go right i want to get a property that's gonna so i in two years time i can say i've got a great return and even but unfortunately that return has to in property has to be really high to make any money like shares you can put two thousand dollars in the shares if that goes up 30 percent, you get 30 percent less capital gains tax right but in property it doesn't work like that so what do you think about this sort of chasing of short-term returns in property and the dangers in that when Ultimately, if it's an asset you're going to hold long term, that potentially matters more. Look, I think, Chris, the way I look at it is, you know, people go, well, blue chip markets, have they had their day? Will they continue to grow? All these sorts of things, because it seems a bit boring, right? The, the thing to make friends with is there's always going to be ge geographical locations that are going to outperform the best blue chip suburb over the next five years. There's always going to be. There's always going to be something that happens and property doubles over five years in this particular suburb. That's not really the answer, though, that we're looking for, because the answer we're looking for is an average return of 7% or more over 20 years. Those blue chip, those suburbs that outperform in the next five years, they won't outperform over 20 years because they don't have the fundamentals to continue to drive that return. And so when people say, oh, look, Stuart, you can go and buy this property, you'll get a 6% yield, and look at the growth over the last two years, it's been another 7%. That's a 13% return. If your investment strategy is dependent on you generating a 13% return, I'd say you've got an investment strategy that that's probably not going to work in the long run. It might work in the next two years, fantastic, and all the power to you, but it's not really going to get you where you need to be, which is in 20 years' time, $1.4 million in today's money in your bank account after tax. So it's really about making friends with, yeah, sure, there's going to be markets that are going to outperform, but what I really want is the highest return for the longest period of time, 20, 30 years, whatever it might be. Um, and But I think there's always that short-termism in share markets, in property markets, and you know, really you need, you know, for, for markets to be efficient and for, you know, smart investors to make money, 
there needs to be someone on the other side of the transaction that's losing. So, you know, in a way, if everyone was winning in the property market, you know, it'd be a lot harder to to make money. So there's always going to be those people and it is what it is. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's looking at the evidence and you can't get 13%, you know, over a 20-year time period by investing in a suburb that's 30Ks away from the, the CBD. So then you've got to then make a decision. What am I going to do? I've got to then make sure I enter that market perfectly to enjoy the uplift then I have to exit that market as soon as the growth is finished. I've got to pay all the transactional costs and then I've got to go find the next market that's going to win, right? Well, what's the probability of doing that consistently well over the next 20-year period to outperform? I would say forget about it. Just buy a great blue chip asset and and sit back and watch Netflix for the next 20 years and, and you'll be better off. It's, it's low probability, and I can say it's low probability from personal experience, right? I live and breathe property. I'm in this market day in, day out, have been for the last 20-odd years, and some of my properties I've timed perfectly and some I have not. And the ones that I have timed perfectly has had an element of market understanding of cycles but also an element of luck. And the ones that I have not timed perfectly have had an element, one in particular, has an element of I had another job to do with that money and so therefore I decided to sell at that time and in uh, the person that I sold it to sold it a year later for a shitload more money. <laughs> that was uh, hurtful because I'd owned that property for 16 years and I'd renovated it and I did make money but certainly I could have made more if I waited a year but what I did with that money has actually had a better return. So there was an opportunity cost in me holding off on that anyway. So, however, it's it still hurts, I have to tell you. It still hurts. But I'm in this day in, day out, and I couldn't time that. So, uh, and I didn't think it was that bad. You know, when I first decided to sell, I didn't think it was as bad as it turned out to be. So I think, you know, I, I think my um, evidence, you know, I, I know I'm only one person, but I think I can support your statement there that, just don't bother trying to time the market. <laughs> I think yeah, I think it's I think that's what interesting thing when you finish that conversation is right. So a person has to time buying in. It's the sale is actually really hard, like timing the sale because markets grow faster that longer than we expect. Um, they booms continue. We just go, there's gonna run out of steam here, and FOMO just keeps on going. So what it you know, and this is if I'm thinking more about in stock markets, right? People get out too early, right? So you know they've got their thirty percent return. They're like, okay, that's enough because there's this loss aversion. If I don't get out now, I'm taking too much risk. Um, and then you know more people start to sell that. That inherently then slows down growth, right? Um, so you be, then you can leave too late, and then you go, oh, I'm going to hold on. I'm thinking about a client yesterday. Um, you know they did really well. They bought in the outer skirts of Melbourne. Um, you know it was a, a an area typically low socioeconomic usually would say it's not going to be great long-term capital growth but this thing went up a lot um and they didn't get out so now the temptation is to hold on till it gets back to that price and so the real play was to get out of that um but they got greedy no in fairness that's not true they naturally sometimes people hold on too long and so you either get out too early or you hold on too long um the problem is that if you once you do sell is it's that where do you buy now? Like and then and and how and so do you think that's the real problem with trying to trade property is that and in shares it's a little bit easy. You can sort of come back in, you can come back out, but it's just inherently hard to trade because you whatever happens over the next three years, we just don't know what. Is it gonna be COVID? Is there gonna be a European debt crisis? We just don't know what the big black swan event's gonna be over that period and how that's gonna affect that market. 
But but even forgetting the black swan thing for a minute, with property, the decision to sell and then the actual sale, there's a lag. And particularly if you're tenanted as well and you decide you're going to put a tenant out of it, you've got to put it on the market, then you've got to get buyers through, then it's blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, you can do a chair trade on the day. You can sell down on one and you can buy up on the other immediately. Uh, with property, if you if you sell, timing the selling and the buying is is one challenge and and uh, I always say go for the hardest thing first. But the reality is, you know, I think when you're talking then, Chris, I'm thinking back to the the boom in Sydney between 2012 and 2017 and the amount of people that came to my business that sold even as early as 2013, 2013, 14, who felt that the couldn't market couldn't get any better, sold out, then couldn't find something to buy and then ended up some of them could barely buy their old house back. You know what I mean? Like they were so priced out of the market by the time that they faced reality after that whole process of waiting for things to come off the boil again to give them a chance to get back in the market. I think people, there's a huge fallacy in this in this country that people can time, can people can actually plot their trajectory, you know, along the property market. So, you know, and the more I look at it, the more I just think that that is a total joke. Just get over it and stop trying to. But timing your sale, I think, is more important than timing your buy. Yeah, and it's different to the share market. You have a, a stock that doesn't have any fundamentals. It can drop to zero tomorrow or, or relatively quickly. Pro- property doesn't really do that. Property has half the volatility rate of shares. And, and so the prices might come off a little bit, maybe 10 or even 20%, but they, it won't drop like the share market drops. Um, I think people get uh, just too complacent too with some property assets. They just look at it and go, well, you know, it's not actually costing me any money. You know, the rent's now paying for the costs and so forth. And where else am I going to put the money? That's the other thing as well. They don't, you know, if they had, if they knew, oh, I want to buy this asset, yeah, sure, they'll let go of this asset. But what's the point of selling this asset if you don't know what you're going to invest in next? I'm not saying you don't do it, but I think that's the psychology. And so I think people, my gut feeling is more than 80% of property investors would be better off not investing in property. So more than 80% of property investors in Australia probably don't generate very good returns. Now, that's just an anecdotal sort of assessment. I mean, I, I, I did ask you for evidence, Stuart, and you just give me a gut feeling. <laughs> I know, it's hard, it's hard to measure. But, you know, put it this way, of all the new clients that I meet that have pre-existing property investments, there would be very, very few um, that would have a perfect portfolio. And I would say most of them would have assets that we need to divest of because they've been, uh, they've been asset selection mistakes. And, uh, and that would be true for really the last 20 years. And that's what sort of led me to you know, at least 80%, I think, just don't uh, make good money out of, out of property investing, which is a real shame because I don't think it's that hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that hard in terms of if you get the right approach. Um, as I said, there's a lot of nuance. You need a lot of experience, but you can, um, you can go and pay for that experience to get it right. It's a simple, it's a simple equation, really. Um, but like you say, it's actually quite difficult to perfect or to execute because there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of so-called experts. Um, I've been reading this really interesting book. It's called Think Again, I think it's called. And um, I've got to remember who, who wrote it. Anyway, it talks about the mount stupidity. And so it's it's people who have got just enough knowledge about something and the willingness to opine about it. And, you know, and... <laughs> 
how long that they sit at Mount Stupidity before the real knowledge starts. They may stay at Mount Stupidity and then they fall off Mount Stupidity and then the, the long work comes into what needs to be uh, to, to be gone into to actually learn properly about something. And there's a lot of buyers agents out there that are sitting on Mount Stupidity at the moment. <laughs> and it's a problem. It's a problem for our industry, but it's also a problem for consumers because they believe their own bullshit. They know enough to be dangerous. And the average consumers you've mentioned, you know, you, you're thinking that 80% have, have made bad decisions. And I would probably inclined to agree because I've seen a lot of portfolios as well. The average consumer doesn't know any better. And they're hoping they might, you know, the average consumer who seeks to get a professional advice sort of knows deep down that they probably don't know. And they're hoping that person who sounds so confident um, does know. And that is a problem because there's, and this is why we've got you talking about evidence, because um, often they don't have the evidence. They're talking, you know, I say, look, where is the evidence that your thesis works? Where is the evidence that your your suburb picking across the country and your methodology to actually go ahead and buy those properties and the asset selection? Where, you know, all the claim that I'd rather, there was one one claim I saw on LinkedIn that I would I would rather have a property data specialist choose my next property than a local specialist. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake! You know, I've got so, I've I've done case studies that's compared the capital growth of properties in in same locations over the same periods of time, and there's vast differences. So asset selection absolutely matters. It's the one thing that does matter way more than suburb selection, um, and that does count because, like you said, there's certain areas that will perform better over time than others but within that you've got to be able to choose the right assets so that is a, a problem that we have in this country that you got mount stupidity everywhere i'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions and you can find out all about what i'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au and there you'll find resources for first home buyers details about my buyer's agent mentoring program access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au And I guess if we're going back to evidence-based investing and someone says, Stuart, I think this property is a good property to invest in, the first thing I would do is look at the past capital growth rate of that asset and maybe perfectly comparable properties around it to build a data set. You don't want to see that it's given 20 or it's grown 20% over the last five years. What you want to see is it's been a consistent performer over many decades. And I would say to people that if, if, if someone is suggesting you buy a property and that isn't the case, then really what you're doing is you're taking a punt. You're taking a guess that history won't repeat itself, that in fact this area has permanently changed to such a great extent that the capital growth rate will be better. Now it's possible, you know, as an area gentrifies or changes over you know, a, a period of a couple of decades, it's possible that it could have changed. But the point is then is what you're doing is just adding more investment risk to your strategy because you're not betting on a sure thing. 
your your betting on that market has actually permanently changed and that's why you're going to get a better capital growth rate. A lot of people can't they can't even benchmark their own property performance let alone look at the you know the performance of something they're looking at buying. And we do that in our business. We do we compare with a if has this demonstrated the the potential to double in value over the last 10 years obviously based you know it had nothing's very few properties have exactly sold 10 years earlier so we've got a um, we've got an equation that tells us that um, and also, if we look at the median, and I don't like medians, but you, sometimes you have to use it. If you look at the median growth rate for that same suburb for that type of asset, as long as there's enough sales to make it a reasonable, you know, statistically significant. If you look at how the median has performed over that time since the last sale, and what's the projection if it tracks the median, and are we looking at it tracking over that or under it, all the same as? And so they're just two benchmarks that we use in our business for every property that we evaluate for a client, and. They're not fail safe, but at least they're a measure and they're a, they're a benchmarking um, tool for us to be able to look at at that history. Um, some properties will benefit from a massive improvement, so you can actually look at okay, well, if and then we also do give it a score in terms of what how we believe it can perform vis a vis the rest of the market there. Um, and some properties can have a real uplift. And so we discuss doing that, but other properties are just always going to underperform. And so client needs to understand that. And back to your research about if you buy an underperforming asset and you, and you pay market value or you get a 5% discount, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, a discount buying an underperforming asset doesn't make sense over time. No, you'd rather overpay for a good asset. Mm. I, I, never, yes. I never really want to bargain. If I'm going to go and buy a property, I mean, I like one. I don't want to pay any more than I need to, of course. But I'm not looking for a bargain. Uh, often, really good quality assets don't sell for a bargain. I mean, you can be randomly lucky, right? It's it's possible, but it's it's very unlikely. Uh, and if you do, maybe maybe it's a bit of a red flag if you are getting a bargain. What don't you know uh, about this asset that that everyone else does? But um, uh, but if you overpay, you know, if you overpay uh, by ten percent for an asset that's going to grow or double in value every ten years, you, who cares? Like, I'm not being flagrant about it. It's, you know, you don't want to purposely do it, but it's not going to change your investment strategy. So instead of ending up with 1.4, you end up with $1.3 million in the bank in 20 years' time after tax. It's still going to work. Because what you overpay doesn't compound. That was the thing that I, when I sat there and looked at the numbers, I went, oh my God, I hadn't sort of really seen it that way before. And it was like, that, that bid is a one-off. And sometimes you do have to overpay for a really good asset and, and, when we say overpay, what are we saying anyway? You have to pay more than the next person. Yeah, yeah and you get the you pay the premium going in, you get the premium going out. So you know it is. What yeah, it is. exactly. So if if someone else has to overpay to get that asset because it's a great asset and it's a they always have to overpay because that's the highest winner at the auction. Then yeah, are you really overpaying? Are you really just paying market price? Because the only way to get a great asset is to pay market price and. I think there is a bit of a compounding thing if you are significantly overpaying. So you've got to always be careful because you're going to pay a bigger mortgage. And There's got to be a margin. There's got to be a, a – sure, there's an argument, um, which is interesting, right, where I've got the same belief coming from an advice background that, you know, like someone's potentially on an income that doesn't have enough capacity, right, to go and get a quality asset. And so they have to play in certain markets, right? They have to play at lower price points. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about first that, you know, they, they sometimes just naturally go to, I've got to reduce my tax. I've just got to go and buy an investment property, right? 
but they're just missing some of the low hanging fruit. Like, and they're not thinking about some alternative strategies that they should have thought through. So, what would be your advice to those type of people? Let's say their salary is, you know, the one to two hundred range, and maybe they've got a home, and so then they have to look at, you know, lower price points in terms of properties. What should they also be thinking about? I think I'd be thinking about can they or will they be in a position in the relative near term to be able to afford that um, better quality asset and and what needs to happen over that time. So if they've got a young family, for example, really difficult to invest or aggressively invest and also raise a young family, your income's lower, your expenses are higher. So maybe waiting a couple of years' time, kids are at school, cash flow's much better. Or if it's equity that they're um, shy on, well, maybe they maybe they can sort of leapfrog it. Maybe they can buy something to add some value, manufacture some equity, even if it is a shorter term hold. Um, on the idea that this is a sort of stepping stone to getting to the that the next sort of quality asset. If the if the clients are you know of a position or in a position where at least over the next five years we just don't feel that their capacity is going to change very much then they've really got to weigh up, to my mind, uh, do they compromise and buy as good a quality asset as they can get or do they consider a different asset class? And, you know, it's just not property or nothing. Of course, you know, we can we can borrow to invest in shares as well and you've got to be very careful about that. But it's possible if you get the right advice and it's possible to do it using an evidence-based strategy that that is also equally low risk as well. So, um if uh, if their budget is so low that I think that they're going to make significant compromise, then I would say definitely not property. You know, so if they if they could spend, if we're thinking about sort of Melbourne, Brisbane, obviously Sydney is a lot more expensive. But you know, if if they if they had a budget of say seven hundred ish, eight hundred, that's enough to buy something that's not going to be perfect, but good enough in Melbourne. Um, and then maybe they, you know, they could consider reviewing it in the future to try and upgrade it. Um, but if they had a budget of five hundred thousand, you know, you're going to compromise in any capital city market with that sort of budget. Uh, I think you just might be better off looking at a different asset class. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, exactly. I, I on that sort of I think some things that I would talk to clients about is like, should they even upgrade their home? Like, you know, like that happened to a client. Um, you know, they there was a really poor asset they had for their home. Um, but there was just, you know, if you're going to go and spend another 500, why not spend that in getting it in, in from a, a townhouse into a house, right? And then get an asset growing tax free. A lot of people just ignore super, right? They just don't even understand that maybe their better cash flow is to go in there and get the tax advantages with super. I think, um, you know, there's all these other the options. I feel that I think that a lot of that person who's you know they want to build, which is a which is a wise thing to do, right? Wanting to build wealth for their retirement, they don't want to. They want to have that independence. They want to feel like they're um, that personal responsibility. Then they go straight down the investment property route when there are alternatives to that person to still build wealth for their retirement rather than just buying any property. And um, yeah, is that sort of something you've also noticed? Yeah, and the home's a perfect one. You know, investing in your own home, I think, is a fantastic strategy for a lot of people because it's tax-free capital growth. Um, but obviously, there's one big element there that uh, we can't use equity in our home to fund retirement. So there's got to be a downsizing strategy at some point. But as long as clients can make friends with that, and quite often, you know, if they've got a larger family, they want to be in a particular school zone, it can work well for them because they don't want a four-bedroom home, you know, in their 
sixties or seventies, and they'll feel most comfortable to downsize at that stage. And in that in that situation, it's a great strategy because. You know, if it's a good school zone and a good quality blue chip, it, it's probably got all the attributes, you know, that that um, that a good quality investment property has. And I, I try and uh, counsel my clients to take that investment lens when or apply an investment when, lens when looking at a home purchase, just because you can often tick both boxes. You can find something that suits your lifestyle, but also is otherwise a, a great investment. Absolutely. We do, too. Um at the other end of the spectrum, sort of entering into the market, one of the questions we, Megan and I often get asked on Home Buyer Academy is, is oh, well, I'm saving my deposit. Should I invest it in the share market while I'm saving? Now, what are your thoughts on that one? <laughs> I think capital preservation uh, is more important than capital returns in that situation because um, if I make an extra $2,000 on my money, that's great and gets me a little bit closer to buying that property. But if I lose $10,000, you know, I'm six months behind the eight ball in terms of having that deposit. So it is tempting. Um, uh, maybe if the strategy was quite low risk, so if they use their super account to amass, the, amass those savings and they had a sort of balanced sort of profile, then chances are you, you, there's a low probability of, of getting a, a big negative return. Um, so that might be okay. But, you know, quite often younger people are, are more aggressive than that and they're sort of thinking, well, you know, dare I say it, Bitcoin or, you know, something something a little bit more aggressive that, you know, a stock might th- double in value. You know, I just wouldn't take that risk. Stuart, on the other end though, so we've got people like trying to save and then there's sort of a belief that, you know, you have to sell your property when you retire, right? Um, and, you know, even when you say 20 years, it's like that means they're probably like, Maybe that's the investors might be buying in their 50s, right? Like ultimately, you know, someone could be buying in their 30s or 40s and buying an asset they hold for 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, how do you sort of talk clients through that that post-retirement life? Because a lot of people don't think, oh, they, they sort of almost think, oh, I've got to pay, I've got to buy four properties to pay off, so sell two and hold two. Well, no, you don't need to do any selling, right? You can just hold them. So how do you talk someone through that longer-term game of holding assets? The, the way property works in most in most investment strategies that I work on is pr- property is a surplus asset. We probably don't ever need to use it. Now, we just you can't take it with you. You're going to have to do something with it, which means that when that's a great position to be in. But hopefully what property does is it underpins super. So that if if super returns are really poor, or we spend a lot more money in the early years of retirement than we expected, at least we've got property to sort of fall back on. But for most clients, super will be enough and whatever other investing and so forth will be enough and the property assets are just surplus. Now, for some clients, depending on their circumstance, they might need to sell one to reduce debt. And whether they do that um, at the beginning of retirement or once they're kind of into retirement, it, it depends on their circumstances. But I think I always try and build an investment strategy that doesn't require the sale of assets because obviously you give away a lot of capital gains tax, which isn't a problem because you, you keep most of it, right? You're paying 23.5% in capital gains tax. You're keeping, you know, nearly 74% of it yourself. So it's, it's all good. But, um, uh, but hopefully we, we don't have to sell. And, and that's right, Chris, and you're going to keep a property for 30, 40 years. The compounding capital growth that falls off those assets is massive. 
Uh, and people always talking about, you know, clients always talking about trying to help their kids in the future, which you don't know what that's going to look like, you know, different kids at different stages and so forth. But, you know, if you want to be put yourself in a position where you're going to have surplus assets in retirement, then compound, properties that provide a lot of compounding capital growth over very long periods of time, uh, you know, are, are going to put you in a position where you're going to be able to help kids or family or have more holidays or do those sorts of things. So Gee. I try not to sell gives options. So I'm guessing from what you were just explaining there then, you're not necessarily a fan of buying super as a buying property in your super fund. Yeah, we did a lot of it in 09 the the rules changed. Thing. Yeah, it was a it was a <laughs> yeah. thing. I'm not so I'm not sure it was such a great thing now. You know, the problem with having property in super is that it's a liquid asset and you've got to take 4% when you're 60, 5% when you're 65 out of super. And it starts, and if you've got an asset that is compounding significantly, all of a sudden you need to pay this really large pension, but you've got no liquidity to be able to do that. Um, and okay, then what you've got to do is then sell the asset, but you wouldn't otherwise want to sell that asset because it's a great asset. And you might argue, well, I don't pay any capital gains tax. Yeah, but you wouldn't pay any capital gains tax if you never sold anyway. I mean, you're going to pay, it's unrealized gain, right? It's unrealized liability. You're going to have to realize it at some point, but when you want to do it, not because you have to do it. So I much prefer shares and equities inside super, property outside super. Um, you get the gearing, the negative gearing benefit. Sure, you're going to pay a lot of capital gains tax, um, but that's okay. You know, it is what it is. You've made a lot of money too. Uh, and at least then you've got the liquidity inside super to really pay that regular super pension once you retire. The property doesn't have to give you a lot of income. It just can't be negative. So I always want to make sure the property portfolio is neutral or positive but it's really going to, unless they've you know had those property assets for a long time, it's really going to deliver a lot of income. Might after you know deep into retirement, but at least in, at least initially, we're not really relying on on it for income. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously sold our advice business back in twenty twenty, and um, we actually work with advisors now, right? But um, we get clients almost every week asking us to do self managed super funds. I think we did two last year, and those two I try to c convince them not to do it. Um, and they went against our advice um, and they're already existing clients. They already had other loans. So we said, look, we'll still do it, right? The the issue we see it is that usually they're punting everything they've got in super on it. They're going, so they're going out of this. So they're saying, and there's quite low gearing. So that, you know, it's not like a tent, like a hundred percent loan against your house that you're borrowing every dollar for an investment property. You're usually gearing, you know, like a 20, 30% deposit, but then you also have to pay that loan down because it has to, you know, and so that gearing gets less and less. So the, the you know, compounding return gets less. Um, and it's higher usually, interest rates too. And the interest rates, that, that definitely comes in. Then there's issues you can't really redraw on the equity and you can't do, you know, things like adding value to it can, can be a problem. And um, But usually just the problem is that, you know, when you look at what they can borrow in super and then the cash they've got, like what asset are they going to buy? And is are you willing to bet on you know the that outperforming stock markets really over the next 30, 40 years? It's a big gamble. And then you've got the other issues on the other side, Stuart. So, you know, as brokers, we could easily be doing, you know, millions and millions of dollars SMSF loans every 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 year for our clients. But we can just see that, that there's not really a business case there. And um, and unless they're they're really buying cheaper properties. And so I just think I'd be, and, and usually those people are already taking those risks. They're already buying those cheaper properties. And what they're really doing is compounding their risk into assets that usually aren't great performers. And 
So they're, they're actually gambling everything they got. They're, they're putting all in on red, right? They're, and and that's that's my other issue is that you're already taking a lot of residential exposure with your house and with and then all of a sudden you you're completely ignoring other asset classes and, and sort of like an overconfidence in property I see that if everything you know you just it can all blow up because super's meant to be your backstop it's meant to be that I'm going to get there and that money's just going to compound dollar cost averaging over thirty years but actually you know what you gambled that and it didn't pay off and you didn't get compounding. And you bought a dud asset, and that's where I see. Uh, and I, I just wonder if it's going to change one day. If you know the 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 lending around super, because it's just going to prove that we're blowing people's super funds up um, because we're allowing people to gear into resi. I think the volumes have dropped off significantly, so I don't think it's on the radar uh, too much. But I guess the other thing, reflecting on, I'm thinking about a particular client that has about three inside super, but also a significant share portfolio, and they've spent, um, worked very hard to reduce the loans on uh, two to zero and one's one loan's immaterial. So it's worked out for them quite well. Um, the difference is that property prices were a lot cheaper in 09. Uh, 09 was when it came in, or was it 07? Um, might have been 07, actually. So so it was still you were still able to buy an investment quality asset at that point in time, whereas it's just not. You're just going to compromise today. Uh, so, you know, I think, and then I think the other thing too is that there's, oh, gearing, gearing, I want the gearing. And then all they end up doing is just focusing on repaying the loan. And so all they're really saving is the six, seven, eight percent they're paying on interest in the loan and, and reducing their level of gearing, as you said, Chris, into a, a an impaired asset. So, you know, uh, you can't invest in good quality, uh, poor quality assets and expect good, good returns. No, and I'm still horrified when I see some spruikers pitching the the self-managed super fund angle on brand new property, you know, because of the depreciation. It's like because of the tax. I'm like, oh, don't you don't even get the whole point. <laughs> Just like, and and I've seen some horrors of what people have bought over the years in their super and ended up owing um, more than it was worth in their super, like, like literally blown all their super uh yeah on i think some it's, of a, it's a red flag if someone's recommending buying property in super today i think it's i mean there could be exceptions of course but uh i think generally speaking it'd be a red flag yeah unless it's like an accountant that's maybe you know working a lot of doctors and they're buying their practice and they're doing commercial properties inside super or something like that but resi and you know pitching it around investing and gearing super it just doesn't really add up to me um in terms of like uh, the the sort of the person who's um, upgrading versus investing more at the moment, Stuart, like with your sort of clients, like how do you sort of um, you know talk them through that decision? I guess like how do how do you sort of navigate that hurdle? Because it, it's a big decision for some people just to you know upgrade their home when potentially it is their best option. Are you talking about upgrading versus investing? Yeah. Look, I think it depends on their their um, current financial position, what other assets they might might hold, uh, and whether we see there's going to be an ability to invest in the future. I always want to buy the the long term family home as soon as I possibly can. 
that that's a priority goal for me because generally, obviously, property prices trend higher. And so if I don't buy that home today, it's going to cost me a lot more on an after-tax basis in a few years' time. And that could be five years, 10 years, whatever it is. And then if if that's the case, I've either got to contribute a lot of cash, but probably most likely borrow a lot more. And that's going to pull a lot of cash flow out of the strategy and then leave me less to invest later on. So there's a big opportunity cost with delaying upgrading your home and buying the home that you really want, that you're most comfortable with and so forth. So if, if that's the, if that's what's sort of facing us, I'm, I'm tend to lean, you know, probably 90% of the time is let's do the home upgrade first. Uh, and then we can add the investment assets later, uh, just because of that after tax cost of, of debt. And I know that it can be really costly in terms of opportunity cost. Uh, and if they don't do it now, they're going to buy the investment property. Also, depending on changes in borrowing capacity, they might not have the capacity in the future to upgrade their home. And we so- saw that change a lot back in sort of 2017 in particular. People were shocked, you know, like then and then they really had to look at their um, investment portfolio, which we then quite often uncovered a bit of a dog that had to be, you know, divested of because they couldn't even renovate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I think, I think family homes are a great nest egg to, to build wealth in. Um, and, uh, and maybe one that's ignored by a lot of people that people think, oh, it's a personal use asset. I shouldn't worry about it too much. I should really focus on the investment side. Um, but actually the the home can help and it it can help because it means we've got lower non-tax deductible debt in the future. It means we've got more equity that we can leverage upon. And if everything else goes bad, then at least we've got a lot of equity to fall back on our home and we can always downgrade later on or something like that. But it's a good sort of plan B, if you like, if everything else goes bad. Yeah, I've just seen this growing um, apprehension, I guess, to upgrade their home, like putting off that decision, like um, because, you know, it's the interest rates, the uncertainty of selling, um, you know, the the it's more enticing to, you know, buy an investment, probably a negative gear it versus, you know, the hassle of, you know, selling and trying to find something. And I, I think it's a real danger because if you don't, you put that decision off, it's really hard to deal with it in the future, right? It's, it's so hard to sell and buy that. The problem never goes away. I think people just got to be very careful just going for the easy option. Well, I've got a lot of capacity. I've got a lot of equity. I'm just going to go and buy an investment property. And they just don't think through that next decision. Well, how are they going to do the upgrade? Are they going to have to sell that investment property? You know, is that market going to run on them? Would they be willing with the compromise of location or can they stay? And I think it's a it's a really valuable conversation that, you know, I think a lot of, you know, potentially in broking, even advisors, right? They 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 skip that. They go, okay, you've got your house. They don't ask questions and say, are you going to stay there long term? You know, your kid's going to go to the high school there. They just go, okay, you've got this equity. How much can you afford on a monthly basis? Right, let's go and invest. And they, they completely ignore this looming problem to upgrade. And um, it, it sounds like you're the same as me. You've got to think through that first before you, you go run off and invest any more money. The big differential between the two is that with the home, you've got to repay the, all the debt at some point because no one wants to take non-deductible debt into retirement. With the investment property, you don't. So if I delay buying the investment property, I've got to spend an extra 200000 to get the same property in three years' time. It's a cash flow consideration for me. Will I, Can I afford to hold the, that extra debt? It's not that big a deal because I'm, I'm going to hit that property for as long as possible where the debt becomes immaterial anyway compared to the value of the asset. Whereas with the home, if I've got to spend another 200000 in three years' time, I've got to repay that 200000 That's got to come out of from somewhere mostly future cash flow over the next 10 or 20 years, whereas that 
200,000 could have gone into super, could have gone to servicing the investment property, you know, and so that's the big difference between the two is that eventually you're going to have to repay that home loan and you have to use after-tax dollars to do that and that can be expensive. Yeah. Sure. Can we wrap it up with a property dumbo? You've got a recent story. You probably even have four of these out, so I'm sure you've got another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that the, I wrote a blog recently about um, the need to hold on to property for the long term. And uh, I'm not going to uh, pick on Veronica here, but, I mean, she did share the story about selling the property a year too early. Uh, that would be my property dumbo, is not realising that. <laughs> not Veronica. So Veronica's it. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's, my, that's I'm your property dumbo. I love well, it. Well, I mean, you threw it out there, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, that's my property dumbo, is, is not understanding that property growth isn't uniform. I and mean, we talk at average growth rate, 7% over long term, et cetera. But you actually might have to hold a property for 20 years. Um, it's, it's less likely, but it's entirely possible that you may have to own a property for 20 years to get that average growth rate. You know, all the growth might come in the last four years of ownership, for example. Uh, and that, that's, that's not unheard of. It's, it's not impossible. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of clients sometimes that just say, I've held this asset for 10 years and I've received no returns. Like, it hasn't really changed much in value. I, it's a dud asset. I want to sell it. And you know it's a great asset and you know it's going to perform eventually and you just have to hold it for that little bit longer uh, and, uh, and having the foresight and the guts to do that. Now, seasoned property investors are much better at it because they've got a portfolio and they've had some that have worked sooner on in the, the ownership period and they've had some that don't. They know that it sort of all evens out. It's really difficult for first-time investors or people that only own one asset because they their eggs are all in the one basket, if you like. But hanging on, as long as you're absolutely confident it's a great quality asset, hanging on, the returns will eventually come, you know, returns revert to the mean. So Veronica's my property dumbo. <laughs> I did reinvest the money in another property. <laughs> a renovation of my own home. I invested it in the upgrade of my own home. Oh, well, there you go. Better it use. Does, it does hurt, though. It still hurts. <laughs> Funnily enough, though, I spoke to my builder and he said, you know what, it would have actually cost you more than the extra gain if you'd waited a year. So <laughs> so I, I'm sort of mitigating that. But anyway, it's, it is a good dumbo because, you know, in many ways it, it I had put myself in a situation where I didn't have an option at that point. So that's the true Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Stuart. It's a really great chat and some of our listeners will enjoy this and others who like a bit of argy-bargy will be a bit upset because we didn't <laughs> argue with you. But um, we do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing um, you know, another aspect, and then that is that sort of more holistic look at it, you know, with your background as, as obviously an accountant and a financial planner, mortgage broker, uh, th you know, you've got different ways of looking at property and also contextualising it, uh, which we really appreciate. It's been fun. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.